Thank you very much and welcome to Delaware Law Case Developments for M&A Practitioners. I want to thank the Boston Bar Association for sponsoring this webinar and I in particular want to thank Laura Knoll from Skadden Arps Boston for putting it together. I'm Mike Blanchard. I'm a partner at Morgan Lewis in Boston and with us me today is uh, Janess Parker, a partner from Skadden Arps in Wilmington and John Mark Zberkowitz, a partner at Richard's Leighton Finger in Wilmington. We've got a great program today. Uh, we're going to run over some cutting edge issues and recent trends in Delaware law uh, that impact M&A practice and, and beyond, including just stockholder litigation in general. A lot happening. We're going to discuss uh, the where we are in the current state of evolution is what I would call it of section 220 books and records demands and litigation. Uh, we're going to turn to uh, the fresh markets case and discuss a little bit of its implications on the standard of review. And uh, then we're going to turn to care mark claims and board oversight liability, uh, a topic that's gotten a lot of attention in light of some recent decisions. Uh, we're going to try to end up with the Shabakuki case, uh, a case where uh, the Delaware Supreme Court had denied a facial challenge to forum, federal forum selection clauses that has some pretty massive implications for Section 1133 Act claims. Uh, and if we can, we're going to wrap it up with a discussion of uh, appraisal litigation in Delaware and maybe some material adverse event uh, uh, dynamics that are happening uh, in, in the courts right now, particularly in light of the COVID uh, situation. So that's a plan anyway, with this uh, talented group of professionals that we have here, I don't know what's gonna happen, but that, that's the, the course we have charted. Um, I'd like to just jump right in and introduce our panelists. Uh, on our screen is Janess Parker. She's a member of the Delaware Bar. She's a litigation partner at Skadden Arps in Wilmington. And her practice really runs uh, soup to nuts, the whole gamut of corporate litigation. She does books and records demands, shareholder derivative litigation, federal securities claims, appraisal litigation, deal litigation, uh, she covers the gamut. Uh, Janess is also active in shaping the Delaware General Corporation's law. She participates in committees uh, that review and draft amendments to the G DGCL. Uh, we also have today John Mark Zberkowitz from Richard's Leighton Finger. Um, John Mark advises boards and special committees on M&A transactions and corporate governance matters. He's a member of the Delaware Bar's Corporate Law Council and he's active in shaping the Delaware General Corporation law as well, just like Janess. Um, he's on the editorial board of Insights. He's written more than 70 articles on mat matters concerning Delaware corporate law, and he's a contributing editor and on a leading treatise in Delaware law. He's also served as an expert witness in Delaware uh, corporate law issues. Myself, I'm Mike Blanchard. I am uh, barred only in Massachusetts. Uh, but I have a, somewhat of a national stockholder litigation practice, and given uh, that most corporations are incorporated in Delaware, that makes me somewhat of a pro-hack Vice frequent flyer in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Uh, but without any further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Janess, and uh, we'll start a discussion on 220. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Mike, and, and thanks uh, to the, the Boston Bar Association for having us today. Happy to be here virtually. Um, so there's been a lot of action over the past uh, two, three years on 220 books and records cases. Um, after Trulia and CNJ Energy and Corwin, we've really seen less injunction work. And these cases have also injunction complaints. 
These cases have also made it a bit more difficult for plaintiffs to plead complaints that get past a motion to dismiss. So as lawyers all do, especially plaintiffs lawyers, they get creative. What can we do here to bolster our complaints? And they look to 220s, just like you know, tools at hand in the oversight context. But they started to use 220s more in the deal context as well. And they're using those, as I said, to bolster their complaints and go for post-closing da post damages type cases and try to defeat the Corwin defenses. This trend started towards the end of 2017 with a case called Laven v. West Corp. And there, the Court of Chancery ruled that as a matter of law, Corwin will not be an impediment to a properly supported demand for to 20 documents. Um, now keep in mind, uh, the 220, 220 cases, the court does not typically get into the merits and it's the lowest burden in Delaware law. So, so that kind of makes sense, but that really opened up this field for, for plaintiff's lawyers. The court in Laven also explicitly endorsed using section 220 as a vehicle or in the oversight context, tools at hand available to stockholders to pursue their money damages um, complaints and, and bolster bolster what they may eventually file. When we fast forward to 2019 and Vice Chancellor Zern at the beginning of, of that, uh, that year came out with a case called uh, Calgon Carbon Corp. And there was another case called Schnatter v. Papa John's um, uh, that Chancellor Bouchard determined both in January 2019. And in both cases, email and text were ordered. So, so now you're not just seeing more 220 cases, but we've now started to see that, not, that electronic communication and not just emails, but also texts are potentially fair game. And I'm going to explain the situations where we've seen the court order those. So for example, in the Calgon Carbon case, the issue there was communications between management and third parties about retention and compensation. Now, Vice Chancellor Zern decided in this situation, the nature of those communications likely would not be included in formal board materials. And so she ordered email and texts, including from personal devices. Vice Chancellor Bouchard in the Papa John's case gave us a little bit more insight into the court's thinking on emails and texts because for, for a while, before the past couple of years, it was not typical that the court would allow um, discovery into electronic communications with a 220. So in Papa John's, uh, Chancellor Bouchard, and now Papa John's was a little bit different case. Schnatter, who was the plaintiff, was a director. And so under Delaware law, directors have much greater access to books and records. Um, than your typical stockholder plaintiff because they have the fiduciary duty. So when you've got that duty, you have to have access to the books and records to be able to exercise your duty. Now the court here remarked in, in, uh, in giving, uh, ordering emails and texts to be produced. And the issue here was about Schnatter's behavior and his performance and his changing relationship with the company. So the court remarked, it's uh, text messages in the court's experience 
And the reason I keep saying text is because I think people don't think about that. You think, okay, fine, maybe now they're giving e emails, but it's text too, and people do text. Uh, the court said, in the court's experience, text can provide probative information, and the court stated, the reality of today's world is that people communicate in many different ways, as we all know. Uh, it drives my mom crazy, but even I kind of just text her a lot. And she says, please call. And I say, why? Why? We can text. <laughs> so people are doing that in the business context as well. And that's fair game in certain situations. But the court noted that it's, it's not oblivious to the fact that people communicate this way now. And you could run into an issue there. Janess, uh, I'll just interrupt for a second. I mean, because, you know, when you think of books and records, you think of some mahogany lined room with board books going back through the years of the corporation's existence. And you think of board minutes and maybe presentations to the board. But we're, we're talking about now are, are literally text messages between between who? I mean, how is it that that how is it that what, what's the standard by which courts the courts will say when that's you know to be produced versus just your standard board materials? And is that like, you know, par for the course now or? Exactly. So, and that's a great question. And the, the cases that I'm going to, that I'm going to now discuss, will start to lay out, you'll start to see a pattern. And I'll tell you just right up front, what we've seen in the Facebook case from mid 2019 that I'm going to talk about now is a perfect example. But what we're now seeing is if your formal board materials are either lacking or heavily redacted, or you say, I think it was the Bluebell case, which we'll talk about later. So we just don't have any. Then the court may say in that case, well, I'm gonna order email. And then, in, and we'll talk about the Empire Records case quickly. That was another case where, so if your, your formal board materials are lacking, you don't have them, they're heavily redacted, or the proxy may have some either inconsistencies with your board materials or may be lacking certain issues that the plaintiffs bring up. And I'm not saying, you know, some material omission. And we'll talk about that with the Empire Records case. That could be another situation where the court says, this is, we need to look farther. We need to look into the emails because the formal board materials are not covering the basis now. So that's kind of the overarching what we're seeing as the standard. And, and which, which is what the Supreme Court said in, in Palantir. You know, if it's not there, then you can look elsewhere. Where, where is it? So for example, in the Facebook case in mid 2019, the issue there was they had produced documents and this was in the data privacy issue context. The company had produced formal board materials, but they were so heavily redacted, it didn't even reflect anything regarding the issues. And so there, um, the court ordered, this was the Chancery Court, ordered email production and specified the custodians. So that's a, that's a perfect example of an, a situation where if you, don't, if you don't have anything in your formal board materials that actually reflects a discussion of the issue, then the court may order email and potentially texts. Later in 2019, sorry, did you have a comment? Well, I was just going to interrupt really quick because it strikes me that there may be some who are uninitiated listening to this, this uh, Zoom webinar who really don't know much about what 220 is all about. 
Um, so, you know, 220 is, is the shareholders' rights to uh, request information. In this context, typically, it, this, they're just investigating claims of mismanagement or wrongdoing of some sort, right? Right. So it's like, it's like pre-suit discovery. There's no lawsuit pending. They're looking for the information. And why are they looking for the information? Because they want to bring a lawsuit. <laughs> so, That's so right. This has kind of become like the, the big show. Derivative actions are all preceded by the Section 20 litigation. Without it, I, I think most uh, derivative claims these days just aren't taken as seriously unless there was a Section 220 demand and, and the production of some you know, books and records beforehand. So just to like set the stage for folks, this is important because the plaintiffs aren't just, you know, looking to do good. They're looking to sue in most instances. That's right. That's right. And, and my point about, you know, if you don't, if you say, oh, we just don't have anything, they'll go to court and say, I asked for the documents and they don't have anything on this very important issue. And another, another point, that's, that's great background to, to let people know, you know, exactly what we're talking about. And, and I'll reiterate Mike, that in that context, you got to remember, this is not, it's not like, you know, fighting the actual motion to dismiss. When you're defending a 220, it's the lowest burden under Delaware law. So it's, you know, when you are in the context of, all right, where I want to see these documents to see if there's mismanagement, all they have to show is a credible basis for the mismanagement, then the court won't get into the merits. There are caveats to that, which is, in the, the later 2019 Facebook case where Vice Chancellor Slights decided the company there had once again produced formal board materials, but there's no argument about, you know, heavily redacted and there was nothing there. And Vice Chancellor Slights said there, that's enough, including because you have not uh, shown uh, any, you have not demonstrated any non-exculpated liability for breaches of duty of care. So that gets a little bit closer to the merits kind of discussion, but not, you know, a discussion like you may have on motion to dismiss some underlying merits discussion on whether you've pled enough or not to get past. So I think it's important to keep that in context too, that it's it's much easier for plaintiffs to, to succeed in a 220 than it is for them to succeed on a motion to dismiss. A very plaintiff friendly standard. And the Empire Resorts case, now fast forwarding to 2020, the year we are in now, this crazy year. Um, in the Empire Resorts case, Vice Chancellor McCormick ordered production of emails again. And this was the same thing. This was in the context of, and this is where you saw the proxy, the proxy come into play. This was in the context where either the board materials did not reflect, because board materials had been produced, did not reflect the issues and this was in the context of a controlling stockholder buyout, didn't reflect the categories that the, the plaintiff wanted to see, or the proxy was either inconsistent with the board materials or didn't address a certain issue. So, so for example, the court ordered email on an issue related to um, a party who, who made a financing offer. The proxy was unclear on the timeline of that inbound offer and whether it occurred before or after the controller decided to accelerate the time frame. And so she said, well, you know, because we don't know and it's not, you know, in any of the board materials, you can have email on this point. She also ordered email related to a leak of the special committee process and deliberation to the controller. 
because the formal board materials reflected the potential that there was that leak, but nothing more. So she ordered email to dig deeper there. And then as another example, she ordered email related to modification of projections because again, the board minutes were lacking in a, in a, in a description of who directed the banker to use those, those sets of documents. And then I want to couple the last, last two cases uh, that I'm going to talk about kind of together in the Tesla case, um, uh, also in 2020 Vice Chancellor's slides, um, and also in the Amerisource Bergen case, in both of these cases, which were in 2020, the court actually took kind of a staged uh, approach to it. In Tesla, um, uh, no board minutes in both cases, actually, on the issue at hand, no documents had been produced. So in some of these other cases, we saw voluntary productions having been made. And either that helps you or hurts you, or not, you can, you know, depending on your situation, could help you in the sense that uh, the court says, well, these are fulsome, that's fine, moving on. Or in Facebook, there's nothing here, you need to produce emails. In Tesla, and this case was regarding Elon Musk's tweets about his April Fool's prank about taking the company, or that the company had gone bankrupt, and then some later tweets on, on um, uh, taking the company private and that he had financing. The company had made voluntary productions of formal board materials and relevant company policies, but not on that April Fool's tweet. So the court said, all right, Vice Chancellor Slides said, you need to produce additional formal board materials related to that tweet. And if the response to that tweet was handled outside of formal board meetings, which we know happens sometimes, um, that directors will and management may talk outside of formal board meetings. If the response was handled outside of the formal board meetings, then the plaintiff may be entitled to inspect whatever form that response took, including emails, if it, if it happened that way. Same kind of thing happened in Amerisource Bergen, which was actually before Tesla, but I have a reason for ending with this one, because it's kind of the, the latest we're waiting to hear from the Supreme Court on. And Mike's involved in, in this case, so he's not going to chime in. Uh, but Vice Chancellor Laster had taken the same kind of, you know, and in my view, a staged kind of approach here. This case involved opioid-related lawsuits and government investigations, as I'm sure you've, you've all heard of, of this case. Um, the court limited production of documents under Section 220 to formal board materials, but then said, after those are produced, you can take a deposition, a 30B6 deposition of the company, into how the company maintained books and records and where certain discussions may have taken place. Then if the plaintiff can make a proper showing to get informal documents and come back to the court and, and try for that, like text messages or emails um, between directors and officers and potentially even officer communications, that case is now up on interlocutory appeal. I believe it's been fully briefed. Um, and the Supreme Court 
to, and again, Amer the company had not voluntarily produced documents um, beforehand. The Supreme Court um, took the case to determine a couple substantive issues, including whether the stockholder needs to have an end to their use of the documents. But the court also was specifically going to review the deposition ruling because as you can imagine, this kind of could really open up companies in a way that 220 traditionally has not been used. It's typically more of a one-way street kind of discovery, at least in the, um, at least in the um, proceeding before the, the ruling, Other, otherwise it would be an end run around it. So the court's gonna take that up as well. And whether the inspection of formal board materials was enough. So again, to, to recap the 220 discussion, we're seeing a lot more of them and we see them in the deal context. Um, stockholders are using them like they would in, in the oversight context to, to potentially help them plead a stronger uh, complaint and defeat certain defenses like Corwin. Um, and again, as we discussed, the court has noted that the reality of today's world is that we email, is that we text, and that maybe communications are not happening uh, limited to the boardroom. Um, and then again, as I just mentioned, depending on the, the Supreme Court's outcome, it could be that we see more uh, depositions from the company in this context, but, but hopefully even if it goes that way, it's more of kind of a staged uh, kind of thing. Thanks. John so with that, I'll kind of pick up, you know, a few years ago, I would say, I've you know, been on panels for a lot of years now, and I would say a few years ago on an M&A panel, we would have never had a discussion about 220. It wouldn't have come up, wouldn't have even occurred to anybody to talk about 220. And now the topic has become so important that we decided to lead off with it. It is such a key component of every M&A uh, litigation that that is where we decided for this M&A panel to kick it off with what used to be thought of as just a you know summary proceeding for books and records typically in the case of a you know somebody investigating wrongdoing for a later derivative suit but it is now a key feature of M&A practice for all the reasons that Janice mentioned but I'll, I'm gonna kind of take it back a little bit and, and just start off with the basics the standards of review and why 220 is so important now to all of us as kind of M&A lawyers and M&A litigators and the like. But basically in Delaware law, you've got three standards of review. We all know them, we all love them, and we all love one of them in particular. And the one we love is the business judgment rule. Because that's the one where the court's saying, look, you made a decision, I'm not gonna second guess it, as long as it wasn't wasteful. That's basically it. Standard is you gotta be irrational. Nobody's irrational. Well, some people are irrational, but usually not in my line of work. The next standard of review is kind of an intermediate scrutiny. It's a little bit above business judgment. This is, you know, typically, you know, you think of like a salad control transaction, we all call it Revlon. It also applies, you know, when you're using defensive measures unilaterally in a Unical type context. But usually you think of a salad control cash out merger, that's Revlon. That's not just the court deferring, that's the court looking to see, you know, did you run a process that was reasonably designed to you know, get the best price reasonably available? And so there's a little more of a look. And then we've got our most onerous above that, and that's entire fairness. That's where you never want to be. That's basically the court taking a look at whether the transaction was structured, timed through a fair process, 
and whether it was ultimately, you know, whether it ultimately yielded a fair price. And that requires gobs and gobs of discovery, a full trial, it, it, you know, witnesses, depositions, testimony, years and years. And finally, the court decides whether the process was okay and whether the price turned out right. You don't want to be there when you're thinking about these standards of review. Where you'd love to be is in the land of business judgment. The court just saying, yep, seems right to me if you guys made up your mind. Here's the thing, though. As I said, with M&A transactions, when you're talking about a sale of control, your standard of review is not, at the outset, business judgment. In a third-party sale of control, you're going to be in Revlon. But we've got case law, and Janessa alluded to this, case, you know, kind of Delaware Supreme Court case called Corwin, which basically says, look, in a third-party sale, if you have disclosed all of the material information to the stockholders, and a majority of those stockholders approve this transaction on a fully informed, uncoerced basis, then we are back to the business judgment rule. And that is restoring the irrebuttable presumption of the business judgment rule, such that when the plaintiffs challenge this M&A transaction that has been approved by the stockholders on a fully informed basis, we're not gonna take a second look the case gets dismissed, it's gone. That's what happens. Now, that's Corwin. That applies in the situation where you've got no controlling stockholders, just a third party cash out transaction, or if you've got a controlling stockholder, they're getting the exact same thing as all the other stockholders generally. That's Corwin. Now, let's kind of take one step further. There's also the entire fairness standard has some odd applications, but one of its odd applications is what is referred to in some of the older case law as entire fairness ab initio, from the outset. So you just start in the land of entire fairness. That standard of review applies in situations where you've got a controlling stockholder that is on both sides of the transaction. So think of a controlling stockholder buyout. I own 75% of the stock. I want to tender for the minority and do a back-end merger, however you want to do it. But that's basically entire fairness of an issue, controller on both sides, or if the controller is getting some non-rateable benefit, so something special that is not shared with the rest of the stockholders and that operates to their detriment. In those two instances, your standard of review is going to be the most onerous, the entire fairness of an issue. How do you get out of that? Well, there's another Supreme Court case, MFW, which basically says, look, if before anybody starts talking substantive economic terms about a potential deal in which a controller is on both sides or is getting some non-rateable benefit, before we start talking economic terms, if the deal is conditioned on approval by a special committee of independent directors who are fully functioning and doing a great job, and it's conditioned on a fully informed, uncoerced vote of a majority of the minority stockholders, then we get back to business judgment. And now look, we've got two, two situations here, as I'm saying, you know, you've got transactions that would not from their inception be subject to business judgment, but you've got ways to get them back to business judgment. How do the plaintiffs 
get out of that fine if you've got a core win transaction where it's, you know, transaction, you know, it's going to have to get approved by the stockholders because the statute requires, you know, a vote of the stockholders. How do they get out of the bind? How do they get past a motion to dismiss? Well, they do exactly what Jeanette said. They file their 220 demand before the deal closes. And they say, look, this merger, hey, I saw this preliminary proxy statement. I saw that things look a little suspect to me. I need to do some digging. I need to start seeing books and records. And so the company has a you know, matter of statute, the company has to produce all books and records that are necessary and essential to their purpose. Their purpose is to investigate wrongdoing, whatever it may be. They're going to pick some things out of the proxy statement or the 14D9. They're going to spin a tale of why it's all wrongdoing. And as Jeunesse said, they have a very low bar. All they have to do is say, I've got a credible basis. That is the lowest standard. And then they are entitled to get books and records. And what books and records are they entitled to? Everything that is necessary and essential to their purpose. And this also goes to Janessa's point that what you would like to do is produce the minutes and say, here's what you were asking about. Here's what we discussed. Here is a robust set of minutes that lays out everything. Knock your socks off. Now, the problem is, and Jeunesse also mentioned this, and I'm just bringing it back to the MA context, though, is that a lot of times you produce those minutes and there are major gaps. And that's where things start to get interesting. It's where there are major gaps in the minutes. Because once there are major gaps in the minutes, or if the minutes are, are you know, scattershot and incomplete, and they are the type of minutes where you know, the board meets for three hours, but as far as anybody can tell, a strategic alternative was discussed, further discussion ensued. That's the kind of situation where emails, text messages, might need to be produced to fill in some of those gaps. But in any event, I want to bring it back. You know, that's kind of setting the stage. So what happens now? A lot of times, you know, what we see, deal gets announced, 220 demand comes in. What the stockholders are trying, what the stockholder plaintiffs are trying to do is essentially get books and records to demonstrate that the disclosure document, whether it's the proxy statement or the 14D9, that the disclosure document contained material omissions. Material omissions such that you cannot rely on that vote of the stockholders to cleanse your transaction to get back to business judgment. Because the whole basis of getting back to business judgment on a Corwin standard is that the stockholder vote was fully informed and uncoerced. And if there are disclosure, material disclosure violations, it's not fully informed any longer. And so you're not in Corwin. And so the case moves forward. That was always interesting to me though, because you think, okay, fine, we're not in Corwin, case moves forward, but you've got an independent board approving a third party transaction, what happens next? And that's where the fresh market case, Morrison versus Barry got a little interesting. Now this was a case in which the stockholders pre-merger did seek books and records pursuant to section 220. And that's what kicked off this whole saga. Basically, the saga goes back to 2015. The fresh market stock price was uh, you know, depressed at the time. 
they had an activist in their stock who was kind of pressuring them to start considering strategic alternatives. Uh, you know, they started doing that, but as that, you know, kind of underlying tone was going on, private equity firm Apollo reaches out to Ray Barry, who was the chairman of the fresh market, owned a decent bit, not a controlling stake, maybe 10% of the stock. Started talking to him about a potential transaction. That was in July of 15. Board kicks off a process around September. They move forward. You know, there was some, you know, question about whether the board fully understood the nature and extent of the discussions that Ray Berry had had uh, with Apollo, including discussions about whether he was going to roll over his stock, questions about whether he preferred them as a bidder, whether he was just going to sell out if they were not the ultimate winning bidder. A lot of questions around this. What ends up happening? The case gets filed in the Court of Chancery. Court of Chancery actually finds, look, tender offer, it was a 251H, you know, merger, you know, tender offer followed by a merger. The Court of Chancery in 2017 said, well, you know, it made some disclosure claims. They don't seem all that material to me. Majority of the stockholders tendered. I don't see any problem with this. Corwin, case dismissed. But then the stockholders were not satisfied with that result. They went to the Delaware Supreme Court. They basically said, look, we had all these books and records. We have emails. We have emails from Ray Berry to Apollo. We have a lot of stuff showing that everything they said in the 14 v 9 you know, was materially misleading, including that Berry, you know, they said Berry lied to the board about his September rollover agreement with Apollo. He was unwilling to partner. All these things, you know, look, these are all big, terrible material omissions. But the Supreme Court said, look, we agree, there are some material omissions here. So they reverse the remand to the Chancery Court and the saga continues. The saga continues, you know, ultimately the Chancery Court in an opinion in December finds that, you know, while there were material omissions as the Supreme Court had kind of guided, uh, none of the directors, all of whom were, were independent setting aside Ray Barry, but none of the directors, you know, plaintiffs hadn't shown a, you know, a breach of fiduciary duty that was of the type that would not be exculpated under Section 102B7, which exculpates, you know, against breaches of the duty of care, doesn't do it against loyal, you know, duty of loyalty claims, but, but they didn't act in bad faith. They weren't disloyal. So, you know, all the directors get dismissed. The case proceeds against Ray Barry, who's an officer, he's not entitled to protection under 102B7 as an officer. It also proceeds against the general counsel. There were at least, you know, colorable claim that, that he had, uh, you know, been involved in the, the misdisclosures. Those kind of types of claims, they don't get exculpated against officers. Case, you know, case dismissed against the directors, kind of preserved against uh, the officers. And also the plaintiffs had aiding and abetting claims uh, against J.P. Morgan, uh, who acted as financial advisor for Fresh Market and Fresh Market lawyers. Uh, those aiding and abetting claims against the uh, Fresh Market lawyers were dismissed in a very recent opinion. And the claims against the uh, financial advisor uh, were, were able to pursue, uh, even though, oddly enough, there was no underlying breach. So you got an aiding, aiding and abetting breach of fiduciary duty. There's no underlying breach on the part of the board. Nevertheless, for the financial advisor, there was some question about whether they had fully disclosed you know, their, their 
their ties and contacts with uh, the buyer. You know, they kind of created a, a situation where, you know, at least at the pleading stage, remember, this is all the pleading stage, but at least at the pleading stage is a situation where there are sufficient allegations that they created, a, you know, a situation where they were allowing the board to breach its situational Revlon type duties. So they remain in the case as aider and a better. But all of this goes to show how the M&A process now is so uniquely intertwined with 220. But for those emails, unlikely this case would have proceeded. Unlikely this case would have proceeded because it's unlikely that they would have had the information to call into question the integrity of the 14D9. Same general situation applies when we're talking about controlling stockholder transactions where the deal has been structured to seek the protection of MFW, which is to say the deal has been structured from the outset with a special committee of independent directors and a vote of a majority of the minority stockholders on a fully informed basis. You know, in this case, when you've got a controlling stockholder transaction, there was an opinion that came out yesterday morning in, in the the Dell case. I'm not going to get into the facts. It's very detailed and complicated, but suffice it to say it's another situation where the court right up in the front of the opinion says that plaintiffs use the tools at hand under Section 220. And here are some of the things that we're now talking about that we saw in their complaint, where they're calling into question the committee's process, where they're calling into question the disclosures made to the minority stockholders so that they can overcome the motion to dismiss on the basis that you had the special committee and majority of the minority vote fully in place, fully operational, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of the, the, the broad overview and how 220, from my standpoint, kind of feeds into what we are now seeing in the MA practice. A couple of takeaways, though, as I think about this, and this will apply equally as we talk about Marchand versus Barnhill and some of the care market oversight cases. But like I said, you know, when we're talking about books and records, and we're talking about the credible, credible basis standard, which is a very low standard. Stockholders need everything that's necessary and essential. If the minutes are not as robust, or if the minutes contain inconsistencies with the disclosure of the background of the transaction, or the other disclosure in the, in the D9 or the proxy statement, then you got a situation where I think the stockholders might get to see a little bit more than just minutes. They might get more robust discovery into emails, text messages, going beyond where you might ordinarily think in a summary proceeding for books and records they should be entitled to go. That, to me, leads to the conclusion that in certain, in certain circumstances, particularly in an M&A circumstance, the importance of minutes and longer form minutes. And I certainly don't support transcript style minutes. I don't like to identify specific humans who say things in the context of a meeting all the time, you know, certainly not a transcript, but at a minimum, topical. We did discuss this, the board addressed this, the committee considered this. All of the topics need to be laid out. There needs to be a robust discussion without that robust discussion, without backing people into corners either. There's a little bit of an art to this. But in any event, that's kind of my key takeaway. I'll turn it over to you, Mr. Blanchard. 
Yeah, thank you very much, John Mark. And I, I'm just going to pick up where you left off. I mean, the importance of minutes is illustrated in the M&A context. It's, it's, I think it's very well illustrated in the board oversight liability context, the Caremark claim. Um, and I, you know, before I even get into the cases, and we're, we're running on time, so I'm going to do a brief uh, overview of those. Um, but before I even get there, I just want to talk about what the plaintiffs are doing with these 220 documents in litigation in general, and especially in the Caremark context. When you produce books and records in a Section 220 action, the court has the power and has uh, deemed it appropriate to impose certain conditions on uh, the production of those books and records. It's in the interest of the corporation um, to do so, in the interest of stockholders to do so. And the court's always balancing that, that, that balancing act. Um, some of the conditions, or one condition in particular, is it's called the incorporation by reference condition. And that is that when the books and records are produced to the plaintiffs, they're produced on the condition that if the plaintiffs come back and file a derivative action, those books and records will be deemed incorporated by reference into the complaint. Why is that important? Well, plaintiffs uh, are creative and artful when they draft their complaints and they, they can have a tendency somehow to leave out certain portions of documents and only focus on the portions of documents that, that kind of favor their uh, uh, particular position. It's just good advocacy. Um, and what the courts of Delaware have said is that, well, we're not going to allow that to happen. We're going to allow the defendants to go and, and use those 220 books and records um, to demonstrate that the plaintiffs have taken it out of context. And, and when do you get to use those books and records to demonstrate that the plaintiffs have taken it out of context? At the motion to dismiss, because that's where it's critical. That's the big show, right? Um, and so the books and records themselves become in some measure a defense to the action that's being brought. And it's really important that those books and records demonstrate the actions that the board took that will hopefully get you into a business judgment standard of review. Or in the Caremark context, we'll talk about in a minute, we'll show that the board was not asleep at the switch and the board did have internal controls and was paying attention. Um, and so it's really important when you're thinking about minutes, you know, I see so many minutes drafted where you can't tell what happened at the board meeting. And I can tell you that the, what the plaintiffs are, are doing now is they're arguing that if it does not exist in the minutes, it never happened. It doesn't exist. It just didn't happen. If you don't see a reference to it in the minute, and I mean specifically, it's like, yeah, the board might have discussed its internal controls, but it didn't discuss in particular some minute as aspect of it, you know? Never, never happened. And you can't infer that in, in, in favor of the defense because on a motion to dismiss, all the inferences go to the plaintiffs. And there's a debate about how all that works, but this is the fight and it's become critical that your books and records demonstrate at the board level, especially if you don't wanna be producing emails, you'll wanna be showing what happened, all right? So just that's a, that's a step off um, into this world of Caremark liability and some recent cases that have kind of shaken up boardrooms if they're paying attention. And that's with respect to, to oversight liability. Uh, the board's duties to oversee the corporation's exposure to risks, both business risks and compliance risks, any kind of risks. Um, Caremark was a case from 1996, and, and it established a standard that's pretty well known now. Um, and in light of 102B7 clauses that exculpate directors from breaches of the duty of care, um, a Caremark claim is in effect a claim for disloyalty and bad faith with respect to oversight responsibilities. What does that mean? It means really one of two things. One, the board had no system of controls whatsoever 
to allow information to feed up to it regarding risks that face the business. That's a basis for being held liable for care, uh, for a violation of oversight responsibilities. The second is that the board had a system and controls in place, but, that, but despite that system um, and with a functioning system and red flags coming to the board about certain, certain risks or, 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 or problems, the board did nothing about it consciously disregarded their duties to address those risks. That's Caremark prong one and two. And for a long time after Caremark was decided, it was pretty intermittent that you'd see a case actually get past a motion to dismiss. The Delaware courts will tell you that you can see it in, in opinion after opinion, the standard for proving a Caremark claim and for pleading one um, is one of the most difficult known to Delaware law. Um, it is just, it's a very, very difficult standard to say that a board had no reporting system whatsoever, had no audit committee, or that the board was aware of red flags and, and just completely ignored them. And you can imagine, without Section 220 books and records documents, it's pretty difficult for a, a, a plaintiff to hit that standard, right? If you don't have a window into what happened in the boardroom and a plaintiff's trying to plead that just on the public record, that's why most cases were dismissed. In the last year or so, we've seen uh, three decisions uh, affirming Caremark claims in Delaware, and that's caused a bit of concern amongst folks uh, who defend boards uh, and, and officers and directors and companies from these claims. Um, and, and there's speculation, well, is the law changing? Is there a sea change in Delaware? And I think the consensus is not really. It's just that you know these cases illustrate uh, where the outer bounds are for a board's oversight. But what it really illustrates is that Section 220 documents are now really in play, and it's causing plaintiffs to get more of the facts that they need to plead a viable care mark claim and get past the motion to dismiss. So the first case that was decided was the Marchand uh, versus Barnhill case, also known as Bluebell Creameries. It involved a company that had one product, monoline company, one product, they made ice cream. That's what they did. And they had really one major risk. It was, it was the risk that their ice cream would not be safe to eat. I mean, you know, there's lots of risks the company faced, but the real core, and as the court put it, mission critical risk was food safety. In that case, uh, there was um, uh, several instances, a series of instances where the FDA who regulates the food safety of the company uh, had found that there were problems with the company's production of ice cream and uh, concerns about listeria. That and it went on for two or three years. Um, and those concerns were known to management, but they were never really raised at the board level. And lo and behold, the, the conditions worsened, a listeria outbreak occurred, and horribly, uh, people died from eating ice cream. So you can imagine the, the corporate trauma that, that ensues after people die from eating your one product, right? Um, bad for the company. Uh, all around and there's gonna be lawsuits. And a section 220 demand ensued and plaintiffs got books and records and they sued on a breach of uh, oversight liability, a care mark claim. Now this, this case is one of these rare cases where the court ultimately holds that care mark one is the basis for liability, prong one. What prong one again is basically no system of controls whatsoever. And it's not that there was no controls whatsoever at the company. In, in the Barnhill case or the, the Bluebell case. The issue was that, that the, the system that the board relied upon was basically management's gonna deal with that. 
we're an FDA regulated company. The FDA is going to come in and do inspections. Management will handle that. And, and that's how it's, we're going to roll. And what the court found was that's not good enough because it's not a board level system of compliance. You can't just kick off that responsibility, the court says, down to management and rely on management to provide you information. And there, you know, there's some features of the case. When I first read it, I cringed because there's some discussion in the beginning of the case about whether or not the controls were effective. And if you're a student of Delaware law in this area, you know that effectiveness is never, never the standard with respect to care mark liability. It's, it's not whether the controls were effective. They, they can not work so well. It's whether the directors acted in bad faith with Sienter because they knew, for instance, that their controls were ineffective. That's the standard you have to hit. Um, the court, thankfully, was clear in saying that effectiveness is, is not the standard and, and the law did not change there. Some things that were concerning, though, were the court noted, besides the fact that the, the board had no board level committee dedicated to looking at, at food safety, its, its mission critical risk concern, um, the court also noted that, well, in it, it, things that influenced its analysis were that the board never learned of the problems at the company that resulted in the Listeria outbreak um, from management. And as a defense lawyer, I'm thinking, well, if I'm representing the D's, why is that the D's problem that management never told them? And, but the explanation is quite simple. It's because the board didn't have a system in place whereby management was required to report that stuff. And, and for that reason, the case was reversed on appeal by the Supreme Court. And it's, it's, I think it was settled actually a month ago. I don't know, maybe you guys in Delaware know that. Um, but uh, you know, that kind of sent shockwaves. But everyone said, no, it's not a big deal because it's just one case and it kind of reaffirms the bounds of the law in Delaware and Caremark liability. Well, then comes Clovis Oncology. Clovis Oncology for our life sciences people out here in Boston should be of great concern. Uh, Clovis is a case that found Caremark liability, at least for the purposes of the motion to dismiss phase, where the company was again, a monoline company, had one product really, and it was an yet to be approved uh, oncology drug, cancer med medication. And um, the company was going through clinical trials and was reporting to the market on how these clinical trials were going. And the company was reporting on uh, 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 the response rates, which I'm not going to get into the details of, and I don't pretend to be able to explain because I'm a lawyer, not a scientist, um, but the response rates um, with respect to these clinical trials. And what was well known to the board and everybody in the industry was that only confirmed responses were going to be effective in getting FDA approval, confirmed responses. And a, the shareholder demanded book, books and records under Section 220, got books and records at the board level, and saw that the board was well aware, as alleged in the complaint, and at least it is accepted for the purposes of the decision, that in fact, the board was well aware there was unconfirmed responses that were being used in the company's um, measurements and statistics and reporting on the clinical trials. And that meant that, that the effectiveness of the drug was being inflated in the reports to the market. That was good enough for the vice chancellor to say, we've got a board here that has blown it, not on Caremark Prong 1, the failure to have a system of controls. They had controls, they were receiving information. In this case, the board blew it according to the court on Caremark 2. Red flags were raised. The board is aware that the company, or should have been aware that the company was basically violating the law by publicly reporting information that was immaterial and incomplete and misleading. In Clovis, 
um, you know, Clovis was, was uh, should cause folks um, some heightened concern about whether the law in Caremark is changing. Because what the court remarked there, I'm going to actually read it. Um, the court identified two worlds of risks that we're concerned with, and one's more important from the Caremark perspective than the other. The court says it's appropriate to distinguish the board's oversight of the company's management of business risk that is inherent in this business plan from the board's oversight and distinguish that from the board's oversight of the company's compliance with positive law. And the court noted that Delaware courts are more inclined to find Caremark oversight liability at the board level when the company operates in the midst of obligations imposed upon it by positive law, yet fails to implement compli compliance systems or fails to monitor those systems. So the law didn't change, but the, the decision itself acknowledges what's happening in Delaware, which is if you're a company that's regulated, you're gonna have to be paying attention to your compliance with laws, and that's probably your number one oversight risk in the Caremark context. Um, and so we've already talked about uh, the implications of, of Section 220 in all of these litigations, and I don't, I've got all of six minutes left, um, and I think we'll just turn it over, but I'll emphasize yet again the importance. Those minutes are important. If, if your minutes don't cover it, then they're not going to be a defense when you get into later plenary litigation. And if your minutes don't cover it, you also may be stuck producing emails, and we all know what happens when emails get produced. Um, they're just not the sort of formal documents that, that are a controlled record you want in before a court. John, Mark, Janesse, where do we go from here? We got five minutes. So, <laughs> I think with our last five minutes, look, I think it ties it up very nicely. I think it all, you know, a lot of this comes back to the minutes. A lot of it comes back to, you know, not just, you know, having controls in place, but, but also making sure that, you know, that they're actually documented and reflected. And look, what I think, you go back to Marshawn, I think part of it may have been just a record-keeping issue. I, I think there is, you know, remember, these are all at the pleading stage. You, you don't have a full factual record and taking inferences in favor of the plaintiffs. But, the, uh, you know, had the minutes been a little more robust, I think you could argue that case could come out a lot differently. Uh, so, again, you know, particularly, you know, with, with monoline companies, regulated companies, you're making sure that things along the lines of regulatory risks that do come up through the chain, you know, one, have a committee that's focused on them, two, make sure that those committees or, you know, and the full board ultimately, you know, all the discussions are being documented. Um, the last thing I think we want to hit is the recent opinion of the Delaware Supreme Court in uh, Salzburg versus Shabakuki, uh, or Shabakuki versus Salzburg, Basically, given that we have just a few minutes, I'm going to give only the headline. This is a company, you know, this was a litigation brought against three companies. It was all consolidated, but they all had in their certificates of incorporation when they went public that if there was to be any federal, you know, securities law litigation under the 33 Act, that had to be brought in the federal courts. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and they're all pretty, you know, fairly involved, but just suffice it to say, it's a lot better to be in federal court on Section 11 claims than it is to be in state court. Those, those provisions of the Certificate of Incorporation were challenged. The stockholder plaintiff, Mr. Shabakuki, said that they were invalid as a matter of law, that they went beyond that which you can govern in a Certificate of Incorporation of a Delaware corporation. And the Chancery Court largely agreed. Chancery Court said, look, you know, the type of stuff that you can that you can cover 
through a forum selection provision in a charter or bylaws is kind of dictated by section 115 of the GCL, which deals with internal corporate claims. All of these claims under the 33 Act are not necessarily internal corporate claims. In fact, you can bring them if you're no longer even a stockholder. You know, 33 Act applies to, you know, debt issuances. That's not under the GCL in any way. You know, it's not, we're not talking about our, our stock and our relationship among our directors, officers, stockholders. And the Supreme Court disagreed. The Supreme Court basically said, look, DGCL, very flexible enabling statute. You know, this is the type of thing that, you know, kind of does impinge, you know, it kind of said it was on the outer bands in some respects, but nevertheless, it still does relate to the relationship among the directors, officers, and stockholders. Looked at a couple of other cases where these types of provisions uh, were found to be permissible, kind of binding provisions on stockholders through the charter and bylaws. Uh, so basically said, look, these are not invalid as a facial matter. Now, remember, when the court's looking at this as a facial matter, it's just saying, does this, under any conceivable set of circumstances, violate the law? And if you can think of one conceivable circumstance where it doesn't, it's not facially invalid. This wasn't an as-applied challenge. You're not looking at how did the board, you know, did the board discharge its fiduciary duties properly in applying it or anything like that. You're just looking at on its face. But these things are now facially valid, so saith the Supreme Court. A couple of questions that we've been asked. You know, number one, Supreme Court was looking at these things in certificates of incorporation. Can I also put them in the bylaws? My thought on that, one, it hasn't been fully tested, but nevertheless, the language of Section 102B1, which applies to certificates of incorporation, is not that different from Section 109 of the DGCL, which deals with bylaws. In fact, 109 might be a little bit broader. The cases that the Supreme Court relied on to reach its holding were all in the bylaw context. I think there is a good, very good argument that these provisions in the bylaws are facially valid. The question is whether a court in another jurisdiction is going to agree with that, because that's really where that litigation is going to happen and where that question is going to get answered. But that's my view as a Delaware practitioner, and I'll open it up to others. I think it's really helpful. Janessa, you have anything to add to that? We got a minute. No, no I, I agree, but I think that was one thing that the court, you know, uh, did mention that it's the, the next question is going to be what sister states will do with this. So, right. so we'll see. And the whole point was, I think, to, you know, part of the point was to help with the, what we see less now, but we saw for a number of years, multi-jurisdiction litigation, which was, I mean, rampant. Yeah. But the Delaware court can, you know, it came out interesting decision good decision but you're absolutely right we'll see yeah. what other and what, well, we, we might hope that uh dno uh, insurance uh the cost goes down because it, it skyrocketed uh in this era of section 11 cases being uh, filed in, in state court well anyway that's all we have time for today but i just really want to thank our, our participants today for a fabulous presentation uh, i hope everyone enjoyed it and i hope to see you back again thank you thanks everyone thanks everybody thank you all very much